You're listening to sermons from Grace Bible Church in Eufaula, Oklahoma. We're a church on mission to glorify God by proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit. Learn more at gbcufaula.com. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn with me to Acts chapter 9. And uh, hope y'all packed a lunch. You know, we'll be in verses 1 through 31. Uh, no, I'm just kidding. But the focus of this chapter, as we have been going through this chapter systematically, it's been the conversion of Saul, uh, which is the Apostle Paul. And we are looking at the whole chapter because today I want us to kind of have a grand picture of what a transformed life in Christ looks like. To, to be able to see that God can save and transform what we would consider probably to be the worst of sinners. That God is that powerful and that loving to be able to transform a life from a, someone who is murderous to someone who would submit and follow the Messiah. So let's read it together. We'll be in verses 1 through 31, Acts chapter 9. I'm reading from the ESV. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. And Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were open, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight, and at the house of Judas look for a man of Tarsus named Saul, for behold, he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he may regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized and taking food, he was strengthened. And for some days he was with the disciples at Damascus, and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is not this the man who made 
havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon his, this name? And has he not come here for this purpose to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. And when many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him. But their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him. But his disciples took him by the night, led him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. And when he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples, and they were all afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord who spoke to him, and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So he went in and out among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. And he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists, but they were seeking to kill him. And when the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. So the church throughout all of Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace, it was being built up and walking in the face or in the fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Spirit and multiplied. Let's pray. God, as we, I come before you, Lord, I feel so unworthy. There is no righteousness in and of myself. But my righteousness is only in the trust and faith of Jesus Christ, your Son. God, I pray that this truth of the grace and mercy of the Lord Jesus can save the worst and most heinous of sinners like myself. Lord, they could call us by your calling. You might call us to be born again, that lives a life, that live a life to the glory of Jesus. God, be with us now. Send your spirit here to strengthen us. God, that we might go out and preach boldly. We might be your ambassadors. We might preach the good news of Jesus Christ on how he can save sinners and reconcile us to a holy and pure God. Not by any works of righteousness in and of ourselves, but through Jesus Christ. May he be proclaimed in this church today. It's in his name I pray. Amen. So when we pick up with this chapter, we see in, in, in verse 1, that Saul, who is the Apostle Paul, is still breathing threats after he had murdered Stephen. And now he's still looking to murder the disciples of the Lord. He has even asked for letters, meaning in the Roman territories, it, they have given them the freedom that if he has letters from the chief priests, then he could go in to certain churches, certain synagogues, and people who are, or even into houses, and people who believe and profess Jesus as the way, he can look to seize them, bound them, and probably kill them through a trial. I mean, look at Paul's own testimony in Acts 22, 4-5. As he is going before King Agrippa, he says, I persecuted this way to the death. Meaning he went to go seize people to put them to death. Binding and delivering to prison both men and women, as the high priest and the whole council of elders can bear me witness. 
From them I received letters to the brothers, and I journeyed toward Damascus to take those also who were there and bring them in bonds to Jerusalem to be punished. Paul is looking and seeking and breathing out threats so he might punish those who follow the way of Jesus. So here is a man who is ravaging people. Here is a man that if we looked at in society, we would probably say, that man is evil. I mean, do we not do that? I mean, do we not watch shows on Netflix on serial killers, which Paul is probably kind of flirting with right here, and go, man, that person's just straight up evil. We would consider this person that is looking to drag people from their homes, from the churches, and put them in prison or concentration camps. We would go, man, this man is just horrible. I mean, he's committing basically genocide here. If you believe this way, die. Here is a man that Christians could easily write off and say, we do not need to evangelize this person. Why? Because this person obviously is too far gone. And in my brain, the way I think is like, how, how could this even happen in a society, right? How could this get so far gone? How could this be so acceptable in society? You would probably think, oh man, those people must be savages. But this is what worldly culture does to you. They expose you over and over to society's sin so that you would become desensitized to the society's sin. They want to expose you over and over and over so that you would say, oh, well, this is just normal behavior. And I say this because there are so many wide open sins in our society today that are just so in your face. And you're like, why is this happening? It's because they're trying to desensitize you. So society's sin, you will be blinded by it. They're trying to expose you so that you would change your thinking and acceptance to sin. It's the idea that the more you're exposed, the more acceptable you will become. And so I say this because how, as Christians, it's so easy to become hardened and mad and angry and short-tempered and unkind and even worse, we might even come to the conclusion that we do not need to evangelize this person or that group of people because they are too far gone and they're sick. But today, we see that God can save the greatest and most profound sinners in society. He can't, and he does. We see that today, God can save those whom we would be judged as too far gone in sin, that he can seek and save them. We see today that God has such great power that he could turn a man who is seeking to murder Jesus and murder his people to now seeking Jesus and wanting to save his people. That's how powerful our God is. 
So the question that we come to today is how does this transformation in a person's life, how does that happen? How can someone who is so angry with people flip and turn to love people, even to the point of death? And so the only way this happens is that we first see that a transformed life is a life that has a new faith in Christ and is filled with the Holy Spirit. That is how it happens. You see, Paul, as he is on his way to Damascus, is transformed. He's born again. He's converted on this road because he came into contact with the Lord Jesus Christ. So what does this look like? He came into contact because Christ presented himself on the road. And the Lord spoke to Paul and said, this is the Lord Jesus whom you are persecuting. After he asked, who are you, Lord? He said, this is Jesus whom you are persecuting. You think you're just going out and killing and persecuting these believers, but in fact, I am so close in them and they in me, you are persecuting me. And he was convicted of a sin as the Lord spoke. His word convicted of him, convicted him. That is why we must meet people in a way that represents our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Because as we are talking to them and presenting the gospel to them, we have to understand that as we come in contact with Jesus and his word, Faith comes by hearing and hearing the word of God. We must bring the word of God to people so they can come into contact with Jesus and be convicted of sin and have faith in Jesus Christ. That is what we see here. As Jesus presented himself, he spoke to Paul and God's word convicted him. That's why in James 1, 18, of his own of his own people, he will, uh, he brought forth us, or sorry, of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruit. It's the word of God that brings people into the contact of Jesus Christ. That is what I want you to see here. And once they do that, once they contact Christ and have a uh, drawing sensation from God, What happens next? There's a brokenness that happens. Because as God is drawing you near to his holiness, what ends up happening? You're convicted of your sin. So as Paul has, as Christ has appeared and made contact with Paul and Paul contact with Christ, there's now conviction. And this is what happens in Acts 9, 4. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? So as Jesus appeared, it says he, and falling to the ground, he literally, as the Lord appeared, instantly prostrated himself on the ground. He fell down on his knees. Why? Because he was convicted of a sin. You see, if you know anything about the Apostle Paul, this busted 
his bubble of self-righteousness. Pop. Blew it up. You see, if you want to know one thing that was driving Paul, that is the driving force behind Paul, it was righteousness. It was righteousness. That is what drove Paul. The kaiosune. It, it's, it's the one word. If you had to sum up all of Paul's theology, all of Paul's belief, what motivated this man? What drove this man? Righteousness before God. That is what drove him. He wanted to be righteous in his own eyes. When you look at Paul's resume, man, it just stacks up. Hebrew of Hebrews, born of the tribe of Benjamin, circumcised on the eighth day. Check, check, check. A Hebrew of Hebrews was this man. Check. A Pharisee and perfect to the law. Check. Man, this resume, it's stacked up better than any of us. He was on the fast track to success in society. This man, I mean, he was a leader at a young age. But the problem is he misplaced his own righteousness. You see, righteousness before God does not come from us. It does not come from us. It does not come from your own works of righteousness. That's self-righteousness and it's pride. The world says that you have to look deep down and you have to fight it. You got to pull it up. You got to just go out there and pull your boots up. Sometimes it gets deep. You got to pull them up a little higher, but you can do it. You cannot be righteous before a holy God without the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. You must believe in Jesus. And when you come into contact, we see what happens. There's a conviction of sin. As you're brought near to a holy God, you are, your sin is brought near to Christ and you are convicted. And the only thing you have left to do is trust and believe in Jesus Christ. That's why the Bible says we must be born again. We must be transformed. That's why we must be converted to Christ. Because if we want eternal life and we want to be saved from our sins and we want to truly change our life, we must trust in the life and work of Christ. When you come into contact, you will be convicted. And you are to trust into Christ, knowing that he paid the penalty for your sin that brought the conviction. But then what happens next? What are we to do? You see, when we look at Paul's life, especially on the road to Damascus here, after Jesus appeared to him, he became blind. And instead of riding into Damascus on his high horse with his letters in hand, he rode in blind, being led by the hand. So what did he do? I asked this because there's a lot of people today that believe once you're saved and you're transformed, if you want to have closeness with God, you got to instantly go to work. You got to instantly start doing stuff to feel that, that, uh, that spiritual high. I remember when I was convicted of sin and I was 
uh, brought, you know, in contact with Christ. I was at a church that it's like, oh, James, you're saved. Okay, what do I do next? Hey, we got a job for you. We need you to be the church treasurer. I know nothing about it, but okay, you know. It's a horrible idea. Horrible idea. I mean, worst thing ever, right? But what do we see Paul do? You see, this is, once we're made right before God, we're now in what we call the sanctification process, where we want to walk with God. We want to draw near to God. Now I can truly look inside and see the sin in my life, and I'm constantly trying to dig it out and bring it before God now to ask for forgiveness and grace that I would be made pure and holy in God's eyes. But the question is, how do we do that? How does that look like in my life as I'm walking with God now, walking with Jesus? You see, Paul consecrated himself as he came into contact with Christ and was convicted of his sin. How, do you, how does that work? What does that look like? Well, when we look at Acts 9, 6, he says, after he prostrates himself, he comes before God. What does the Lord Jesus command him to do? He says, but rise and enter the city and you will be told what to do. The first thing as we consecrate ourselves before the Lord is that we submit ourselves to the Lord's authority. That's what we see Paul do. The Lord gave him a command and he followed. He was now following his king. Then what happens? Acts 9, 11, And the Lord said to him, Rise. And he's, as he's talking to Ananias here, the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight. And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, what is he doing? He is praying. We now get to come before God with our concerns, with our conviction, and we get to pray to the Lord that his will be done in our life. So he's praying. So as, An as Paul is praying, Ananias walks in, Acts 9, 17 through 19. So Ananias departed and entered the house and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you might regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell off his eyes and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized and taking food, he was strengthened. I'm showing you this because when we look at a transformed life with a new faith, it is now a life that is filled with the Holy Spirit. It's filled with the Holy Spirit. It, it's the Holy Spirit is now your supplier in your life. It's what's going to motivate you, empower you. You're not going to go out into the world and just make all the money and then be empowered in your life before God. That's not the way it works. We find our fulfillment by being empowered and supplied with the Holy Spirit. It is our gasoline that makes us go. But you might ask, how does 
this factor into my life? How does this apply? How can I apply this to my life? And the Apostle Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 15, 31, he tells us that he must die daily. He must die daily. And what he is doing here is he's quoting Luke 9, 23, when Jesus is saying, and he said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. And what he means here, I believe, is that we can no longer rely on our own self-righteousness. We can no longer rely on the works of the flesh. But we must rely now on the Holy Spirit. That is the good work that he started in us, and that is the good work that he is going to bring to completion. All of your faith, all of your trust must be upon God. And in order to do that, you must fight and battle your flesh now daily. Your flesh is going to want to say, follow the ways of the world. But it's in the spirit and truth that we, through the Holy Spirit, get to follow and trust in Christ. Not only do we see a transformed life now, but we see how a transformed life is a life that has a new message. So once we've been born again and we have a new life and we've been filled with the Holy Spirit and we are transformed into Christ, he's going to change the way we think and the way we speak. Look at Acts 9, 1 and 2. See how Paul is talking. See, Paul in Acts 1, or in Acts 9, 1 and 2, he's breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. What that means is he, every breath he takes, oh, we're going to kill him. Oh, I'm going to imprison him. Oh, I got the letter. I'm going to, I'm going to go grab him. He's literally, every breath, he's breathing threats against him. He's breathing condemnation before Jesus and his disciples. But after he's been transformed, I want you to see how the Lord changed him. He gave him a new message. You see, the very instrument that was being used against the Lord, the Lord has now flipped and he says, mine. And now he says, all of your qualities all of your training is now going to be used as my instrumentation to spread my message. All the background, all the things you're doing and been trained for, I am going to use now as my instrumentation. You were once breathing threats, and now what do we see him doing? See, in Acts 9, 20 through 22, we see... And for some days, he was with the disciples at Damascus. And immediately, this is after he's been filled with the Holy Spirit and empowered and strengthened, he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, saying, he is the Son of God. He has a new message. It's not the threats. But he's now excited, and he's proclaiming Jesus. Skip down to verse uh, 28 and 29. So he went in and out among them. So as he's in Damascus, now he's in Jerusalem, preaching boldly the name of the Lord. 
and he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists, but they were seeking to kill her. The same man who was breathing threats, now threats are being breathed to him. So he has a new message. And my question to you, how is your speech? How is your speech? Is it different now that you've been saved by Christ? The people you hang around with, do they still want to hang around with you? You see, how you talk matters great, great. I want to read why from 2 Corinthians 5, 17 through 20. This is the Apostle Paul. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. The new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their righteousness against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God, making his appeal through us, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. How we talk matters greatly. It matters greatly. If people are constantly hearing you gossip, 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 and then they hear, oh yeah, be reconciled to Christ. Gossip, gossip, gossip. Your message is going to not be very effective. Just logically, they're going to hear you say gossiping about people and they're reconciled to Christ. Well, you're just gossiping all the time. Also, what you're saying and how you say it matters. If you're like that person, you're, oh yeah, you need to love Christ and you're just being hateful and brash with people, it matters. Because love is patient and kind. It doesn't mean you have to accept the sin, but you are to love your neighbor. Why? Because you are an ambassador. An ambassador is someone who represents the king, speaks on behalf of the king. That's what Paul tells uh, the Corinthians, Christians. He said that God is making his appeal through us. You are being used as an instrument of God since you have been born again, transformed. You now have a new message. You now are to represent the ambassador or the king as an ambassador for him. This is huge. You have been given the ministry of reconciliation. You're trying to reconcile people not to make war with God because they are destined for hell loss for eternity. You're an ambassador. But does this mean you're going to please everyone with your words? The answer is no. The old Puritan saying that says, the same sun that melts the ice hardens the clay is so true. And we see that with Paul. You see, Paul There's a couple of factors here, and I don't want to get too deep. But in verse 23, it says, many days have elapsed. There's a little time frame. 
You see, Paul, as he was ministering in Damascus, he was there for three years. That's what we see in Galatians 1, 17 and 18. Uh, and he's in this region, kind of south of Damascus in the Sinai Peninsula, kind of in the wilderness. And he's presenting the gospel. And he's doing it for three years. And during that three years, he upset the Jews who were seeking to kill him and the Nabean king who was also seeking to kill him. And so once the brothers in Damascus heard of this, they kind of said, hey, Paul, man, you got to get out of here. So at night, because they were watching the gate, they lowered him out uh, uh, a window in the wall, as Brother Adam talked about. And then from there, we see he went to Jerusalem. And so he started preaching in Jerusalem as well. And who did he preach to? The Hellenistic Jews, Right. These are the same people you think if anybody would trust Paul, it would be these guys, right? I mean, he was with these guys when they stoned Stephen. He grew up with these guys. He was trained with these guys. He traveled with these guys. And so now he's preaching to these guys. Well, it took him three years for people to seek to kill him in Damascus. It only took him 15 days for people to kill, try to kill him in Jerusalem. Okay, you're talking about like a cage stage Christian here. It, it, Paul is in it, okay? He's ready. But the point, even though he was presenting and people were tried to kill him, he did not deviate from the message. He spoke boldly. What does this mean? He didn't try to change the message to make it more appealing to people. It's the message that saves sinners. However, it's the message that can harden people as well. We do not get to have the authority to change the message, but we are to follow the king as ambassadors to present his message because we have a new message now in our life. Now, so will there be rejection? Yes. Will there be loss of friends or even family? Possibly yes. Will there be loss of titles with this message as we preach it boldly? Possibly yes. Is there going to be a loss of status in society? More than likely yes. Will you be alone? The answer is no. You see, a transformed life is a lie that has a new fellowship. This is the good news. See, once we've been reconciled to God, Paul tells us in Romans 8, uh, 17, that we are now children of God. We are children of God. We are fellow heirs with Christ. We have been brought into the family of God. And once you've been brought into this family, you know that your former friends and former family, which involved the way of the world, are no longer the influence you want in your life. It doesn't mean you can't be friends with them, but Paul did not try to go back to the Hellenistic Jews and pick up right where he left off, did he? He had a new message and a new message or mission. He wanted to spread the gospel, which involved more suffering because the Hellenistic Jews sought to kill him, the same people whom he claimed to be a part of. At one time, they didn't want anything to do with him. 
But now he was trying to associate with who? The disciples. He sought fellowship with same-minded, same-hearted, same-spirited people. Now, this isn't going to be easy sometimes. Possibly sometimes it's going to be easier for others, but for Paul, we see how his sin was very open, right? So the disciples had probably heard of his work around Damascus, that he had been preaching for three years there, but they were still skeptical of him. And probably rightfully so, because they wanted to protect the flock. They probably thought this is just another scheme, that this guy is trying to fake it so he can come and arrest the leaders and imprison them or kill them. And if this is some of you whose sin has been very open to everybody in society and everybody knows your sin, but you've come to acknowledge Christ your Savior, my message to you is to keep trying to be a part of the family of God. You see, that's what Paul does here. Paul, in verse 26, he says, and when he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples. He, this word is in the infinitive, just mean he kept trying to join the uh, disciples. But they were all afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. You see, if this is you and your sin is open, my message to you, as you have trusted Christ, keep trying to be a part of the family of God. Okay? So our part as a church family is this, is that we need people who are trying and willing to risk everything to bring others to Christ or to bring others to the disciples. Look what Ananias did. I have two examples here. Ananias in Acts 9, 13, he says, but Ananias answered the Lord, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. We need guys in the church like Ananias who understand the risk at bringing others into the family of God who are willing to risk everything to be obedient to the Lord to bring others but we also need leaders like Barnabas who as Paul is trying to be uh, with the disciples what happens Barnabas in Acts 9 27 but Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord who spoke to him and how at Damascus he preached boldly in the name of Jesus. You see, we need church leaders like Barnabas who are willing to accept the testimony of others, who are looking at the, the way that God is using his grace to save others and to bring them in and accept their testimony. We need guys who have an eye for grace, who are willing to help make disciples greater than themselves like Barnabas. Because we have new fellowship, we've been brought together by the same Spirit of God, we have new brothers and sisters. 
that God is calling. And so as a church, as a whole, what it looks like is in Acts 9.30. So when they brought him in and the brothers and disciples accepted him, they then looked out for one another. They looked out for Paul who was proclaiming Christ boldly. They looked out for him to save his life from the same people he once used to associate were now trying to kill him. So in Acts 30, what this looks like, and when the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. You see, as a family, you look out for one another. As a family, if someone's trying to hurt you, you're trying to protect them. And as God, as we go out and spread the message of Christ then we have to understand as people transform and are born again, there's going to be new fellowship that God is going to bring in to our family. So in conclusion, we see how the life of an individual can be completely transformed. We see how an individual who is in horrible open sin and committing murder to innocent people once he comes into contact with Christ, can be completely changed. And this happens because when we come in and hear God's word and we hear the gospel, it's going to, be, it's going to bring conviction of sin, which means that now we don't trust in and of ourselves, but we put our trust and our faith in Jesus Christ, the righteous one. And now his righteousness is counted towards us. And we are now his ambassador. Our language has been transformed. Our message has changed. Where we were once breathing out our own self-righteousness, we now look to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ so that others might be reconciled and made right with God. And lastly, we see how because we've been reconciled with Christ, we are now brought into a new family. We are now heirs with Christ. That means that you are now sons and daughters that are heir to the kingdom of Christ. And we have a new fellowship and a new family. So in closing, in summarizing verse 31, may the Lord continue to grant us peace. May he multiply us by building us up his saints who have the fear of the Lord in the encouragement of the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much for today. We thank you for the good news of Christ Jesus. God, how he can transform our life by bringing us into contact with him, how he draws us in. God, you gave us the promise in John 6 that all that the Father gives to you will come to you. And God, I pray that as we are your ambassadors, as we go forth, as we spread the gospel message of Christ Jesus, that God, you would, that you would multiply us, that you would increase this family. God, we pray that we are your ambassadors, that we have been transformed with a new message, been empowered by the Holy Spirit and strengthened so that we may do your work and your service. God, I pray for us now as we, as we respond. May we respond in faith. May we respond prostrating ourselves, bowing down to you, our King. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.